0: So by the time I got to Wall Street, yeah, I was motivated by being around more women in a more balanced environment. That was great for a while. You know, I obviously enjoyed very much the very first woman that I worked for. But then, yeah, going back to McChrystal Group, not a lot of women there, at least at the senior levels, like I was for a while, the one female managing director elected by my male peers. And then at the hedge fund, of course, like, you know, I roll in there six months pregnant and everyone's like, what is this f- <laughs> pregnant woman doing in our space? So it was, you know, again, like I noticed it, but I you know I've definitely found ways to make it work for me. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena we are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and
1: passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everybody. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline Education. I'm delighted to be here today with Lenore Carafa, partner at First in. Lenore, it's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a really fun hour. Lenora and I both live in Park City. We've talked a lot about transitioning here from major metropolitan areas with our kids and husbands in tow. And Lenora, as we kick things off, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself with our listeners. So I grew up
0: on Long Island, New York. My dad was a cop. My mom was a homemaker for the first 13 years of my life. I... Decided to attend the Naval Academy and went in in 1996, really did that out of a sense for wanting to serve my country, but also basically fell in love with the place when I visited. There were all these students running around who looked like they knew what they were going to be doing with their futures. And this was really right after the first Gulf War, period where I thought we were going to enter a peacetime military, but I graduated in 2000, about a year later. As everyone knows, the world changed. So my first duty station as an officer in the Marine Corps, I went out to MCRD San Diego, but was seconded up to Camp Pendleton to be a military police officer. And my first you know, real experience was San Diego gate on 9-11. And so obviously that very much changed the course of what my military career was going to be. Didn't end up deploying until 2005, spent a little bit of time in Iraq. Transitioned out through business school. I was a bit of a lemming. I was just doing what the other smart captains that I knew who were transitioning. So I just followed them there. Really didn't know what my future was going to look like, but I was like, hey, they can do it. I can do it. So that's what I did. And then similarly, I landed a fellowship with Merrill Lynch. It was for underrepresented groups within investment banking, sales and trading. Did my summer in 08 at Merrill Lynch. At September 2008, Merrill basically went away. The announcement was made that they were going to be joining Bank of America. So graduated into 2009, definitely the nadir of where finance was at the time. But yeah, had a good run on Wall Street for a few years after that. You always want to start at the bottom. I remember all the bankers saying to me, you're so lucky to get a job. You're so lucky you're starting now because you're at the bottom. You're going to have a 10-year run. I made it all three years, but that's a different story. Transitioned out of there, went to a startup, SoFi, not so much a startup at this point in time. After that, I spent six years in my crystal group, you know, amazing experience, really got the chance to interact with senior level executives at Fortune 100 companies, traveled all over the world for a couple of years and you know, worked on implementing team of teams. And then after that, I was at a hedge fund. And now I am at a small venture capital firm called First In. I love it with the right team. And I'm also living in Park City, Utah with four little kids. So I had four babies in five and a half years, and my youngest is now two and a half.
1: Thank you so much for sharing those highlights. And I'm thinking about the number of really kind of earth shattering moments that you went through quite early in your career, like starting with 9 11. I mean, that was just. Such a traumatic event, such a massive event on the world stage. But the crisis on Wall Street in 08 and 09, I mean, that was also another one. Do you remember what you were thinking about, how you felt, you know, how you sort of got yourself together to face those moments as they occurred?
0: Yeah. So I think everyone, you know, probably remembers very distinctly where they were and how they first heard about what was happening and it was you know new york first and so i was driving to work at camp pendleton i was a little bit late that day i forget the exact time that it was but i was listening i'm almost embarrassed to say it to the howard stern show and he was the one that was making that announcement and you know for me it was my brother's birthday he was in a city that day my biological mother actually worked in one of the towers And, you know, you're hearing this news and like, I get to work and it was my provost marshal, my boss was the first one that really identified what was happening. He's like, I think we're under attack. So we did what we could. And that was for me, you know, grabbing an M16 and going to stand post at the gate of Camp Pendleton and make sure that we thought there could be vehicle borne IEDs coming through, terrorists could attack our base. And so that's what we did. So in those situations where, you know, the world is completely
1: out of your control, you control what you can control. So you mentioned that your father was a police officer. Did his experience influence your decision to join the military? Was that part of a family tradition at that point or no? It's yes and no. So my grandfather had served
0: in the Pacific in World War II but my father was a Vietnam era potential draftee. And he was in seminary school at the time that the Vietnam war kicked off and has been very open about the fact that if his number had been called, he would have, he would have left the country. And so I think, you know, I don't want to say that he regretted that like thought process, that right? He was never called up. He never dodged the draft, but he spent 27 years serving his local community as a police officer. So he really was, in fact, very service oriented. And so when I started looking at the Naval Academy, I think he tried to contain his excitement, <laughs> but it's pretty hard to do. So I think he was very, very proud to have me go to the Naval Academy and to spend you know, what he thought might be a career of service.
1: That's amazing. Wait, wait, wait. I just, I want to get into this a little bit because this is amazing. So he was in seminary school. So was he preparing to he, be a Catholic priest?
0: He was going to be a Catholic priest. Yeah. My grandmother and grandfather, they were the type of Catholics that literally, you know, attended church pretty much every single day when they could, even before work. And so, yeah, they were raised very religious. And my dad was in seminary school. I think he was there for all of two years. But of course, like he left at some point and, you know, married my mom and brought our family together. But yeah, he was ready to dodge the draft for sure.
1: But it's so interesting to me that he was ready to dodge the draft. But then chose this life of service to his community and to his society, and then was completely behind your decision to join the military. Like, I could see in some cases, parents who held that belief system not wanting their child to go into the military. What was it that made all of that turned all of that into alignment for him?
0: Well, I think he just didn't believe in that particular war. Right. And that's, um, I always struggle with how to say this because I actually think. We may look back on Iraq in a similar way, like our generation invests. like, hey, why were we there? Were we really, you know, doing what we set out to do? And I'm not like, there's not a bone in my body that is trying to diminish the service of either those that served in Vietnam or those of us that served in Iraq. But, you know, I think we look back at this one and we might think, you know, maybe we made the wrong decisions at the time in both cases. Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: Lenore, I want to get back to your career, and you walked us through some of the highlights and some of the twists and turns. And you also wrote an article in Fortune and talked about those career transitions. And you said you began to perceive struggles and changes less as personal failures and more as opportunities to learn and grow. And we talk about having a growth mindset all the time at Breakline. So I'd love for you to share some of those struggles and challenges and how you shifted your perspective and really turn them into opportunities for advancement. Sure. And look, for me, I think this
0: one I should start in high school, right? So I would say in high school, I did not have a growth mindset. I was a nerd and wanted to learn as much as possible. And also just frankly, wanted to be the best and number one at everything that I did, you know, oldest child adopted other factors like I was just motivated and you know a little bit driven towards perfectionism and frankly didn't have any failures for you know really the first kind of 18 years of my life other than losing a few soccer games to it, right, which isn't such a big deal. So when I got to the Naval Academy, it was a reckoning for me. So the first summer I was probably the worst midshipman, period, hands down, like in the company. I still remember, you know, every day, like Annapolis heat. I've got very curly hair. They cut my hair short. I look like a clown. You know, the detailers would ask my roommate, hey, Delaney, did you beat down your roommate's hair this morning? Right. So I just you know, getting ridiculed ruthlessly, having to do simple things like recite the menu for noon meal while someone was screaming at me. Couldn't get that right. I'm sure there's a point at which I forgot my own name and my roommate's name. So kind of failure after failure at the Naval Academy, really I'd say it set me up well for, you know, like the rest of my career, right? So, you know, my grades slipped, you know, I managed to pull it all together, I'd say by the last two years, but failure after failure really prepared me for, you know, a very challenging career. So I think I went from being very brittle to being a lot more resilient and that prepared me for, you know, like my time in the Marine Corps. I think I was a better officer because I had experiences, I had experienced those failures while in the safe environment at the naval academy you know and then subsequently getting you know th- through like a, a deployment and some of the challenges there and then you know making the transition i was prepared for more of those setbacks and i might have lost the ball i'm part of the question so <laughs> no, me,
1: no no, no you know. that's okay no so as i'm thinking about you as a young woman getting screamed at like kind of enduring personal attacks about your appearance there was some quality of humiliation i think in in the way that i'm perceiving that experience and i'm just wondering like when i think about moments like that for me when i've been super challenged also i think about the isolation i felt at the time and one of the keys for me in transcending moments like that was actually finding support somewhere in my network and i wanted to just get into a little bit like you glossed over a bit the how you went from like not being able to recite the lunch menu and as you described it failure after failure to a career where you really started thriving what did you do you know how did you actually climb out from the abyss, (laughs) you know, those like very dark moments where, at least for me, analogous moments in my own career, I could look around and not recognize myself anymore. And I'm thinking of you as like a star high school student, star athlete, and then you show up and as you describe it, you're like last in line. In some ways, it's so startling to see a turn in your fortune like that. How did you actually get back on top and remind yourself of who you were and what you were capable of? Yeah, that's a
0: great question. So, you know, I think back, You know, I mentioned Delaney, Maggie Delaney was my roommate at the Naval Academy. And the good news is I was not isolated because I had her and I had other great, great teammates around me. And there's something about, you know, it wasn't like it was just me, like there were everybody else was getting screamed at, everyone else was getting pushed and like in different ways and challenged. you know, I mean, I still remember days where there were folks like young men crying next to me doing like pushups, right? And you know, so we were all going through that hell together, and we all experienced it in like slightly different ways. And so I'd say, you know, that actually kind of brought us all together as a team. So that's one. So you really learn to rely on the person to the right and left of you. You know, I'd say, again, my roommate was particularly helpful there. So yeah, so just, you know, creating those really strong bonds with others was very helpful, getting that support. And then, you know, at a certain point, I remember, I had a semester, I'm so embarrassed to admit this, but I had a semester where like my grades were in the low twos. And, you know, I had a friend at the time that was like, This isn't you. I had like to impress a guy, I had showed up at his room and solved the weekly math problem. (laughs) This was a person that was like consistently a 4 0, like was going to be a battalion commander, was like so successful. He's like, I don't understand how your grades are so bad. Like, this is ridiculous. And, I just really regrounded in a little bit of who I was before. And I had that attitude. I finally just started to regain that attitude again of, look, anything you can do, I can do better, right? And that's a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. But like, that's what carried me to high school success. And that's what, you know, ultimately led me back to, hey, like, he can get a 4.0. He's no more than I am. Let me just put in the work and I can do this. And then you know, once I started kind of getting momentum there around grades, around you know some of my extracurriculars, and dialed back a little bit on extracurriculars, I was running cross country at the time and trying to do a keto. Didn't really leave much time for homework, so also just shifted my priorities, and that was pretty helpful too.
1: Mm-hmm. Can we talk about some of the other transitions you mentioned? Being on Wall Street and and staying for three years, and then like making a pivot away from that. What caused you to depart from that career where, when so many people were saying, hey, you're so lucky to have this job. You're so lucky to be here. And you decided that it was you know, your pathway elsewhere. What was that decision about for you? So I'll take a quick step back
0: on that one just to let you know kind of how I landed there. And I think it really ties to why I ended up ultimately leaving. I remember I did, with a fellowship that I got, I had an option to look at investment banking or sales and trading. Investment banking, you know, I think wonderful skill set. but bottom line is those folks were working like 18 hours a day, almost minimum for their first year sales and trading. You're a little bit more market focused. I decided to split the difference. I was looking at capital markets. So you get the investment banking training, but you have like more realistic hours. So when I met the group at Merrill Lynch, it was almost 50% women in that DCM group. A couple of them were pregnant in the summer of 08. So I was like, oh my gosh, you can actually do this job and have a family. I didn't even have a boyfriend at the time, but I'm like, you know, the me a couple of years from now, was going to be important to me. So then when I started, number one, I was hired into that Merrill culture. I loved that Merrill team. When I went and started full-time in 09, that was the one investment banking group where the B of A culture kind of took over and it's as much B of A folks as Merrill folks. My boss starting out, woman by the name of Amy Spur, she was a managing director in her kind of late thirties, two young kids, husband worked at Goldman Sachs. She was brilliant, motivating. I just I so enjoyed working for her. I mean, she was, and I say this in the, the most loving way possible, a complete hammer, but she had to be. She had to be ruthlessly efficient with her time. Showed up at you know probably 7 a.m. every day, left every day by 5.30 because she had all those kind of competing priorities to balance. So working for her, I mean, I learned so much, and I would have followed that woman anywhere. And ultimately, I think a lot about her in that moment, because I feel like it's a little bit where I was a couple years ago, two young kids trying to balance a dual career couple, and it's so hard. And she just decided one day she was going to walk away. You know, she subsequently found an amazing career still at Merrill, but as a financial advisor but the person that took her place had no leadership experience. This was her first you know, team that she was being put in charge of. There were only three of us. So you would think that it wasn't going to be that challenging. But of course, like I had to do some introspection and realize that I am a tough person to lead because I had had so much leadership experience leading up to that moment. So I was a really tough audience. And there was a few things that really led to our relationship breaking down. She fired she basically pushed out the VP that was, you know, between her and I. And when she and I started working very closely together, there were a few instances where she just really showed lack of integrity in dealing with clients. And I can't deal with that. I realize, you know, that's one of my core values. It's very important to me. And I did a very poor job of leading up. Like I just kicked the beehive and made the situation worse. So of course, you know, 18 months into this, I'm miserable. She's miserable. And I'm like, this isn't going to work. And so that's really when I ultimately decided to leave. You know, I I did the best I could to kind of shape the environment around me, realized that it wasn't going to work long term. And just to said, you know, I'm going to go seek another opportunity.
1: There's so many threads to that story. And I want to get into at least two of them. One is just about your experience as a woman in male dominated arenas. So obviously, when you joined the Marine Corps, The officer corps was only 5% women at that time. Wall Street's not much better. It sounds like that particular group happened to be fairly balanced, but in general, finance still is, you know, way, way underrepresented when it comes to women. And now you're in venture capital, which is even worse (laughs) Wall Street. Like maybe 15% of partners, maybe across the board are women, something like that. Do you think about... Being a woman in those spaces, like, does that top of mind for you or not so much? I'm curious about your experience there. It's not so much top of mind anymore. Yeah, But that being said, you know, I
0: still notice when I go to a conference and there's like the pictures of 40 men splashed across a page and there's like two women that are there or there's like, you know, half the panels, you don't have a woman. I still notice those things know, I definitely notice, you know, we're in security technology investing, right? So, like, of course, I mean, I'm sorry to play into the stereotype, you can definitely find more women, you know, investing in consumer. So, you know, I happen to pick an environment even within the VC that isn't where there isn't a lot of women. But that being said, you know, when I do see a deck from a female entrepreneur or a female led team, let me tell you, that deck gets a few more minutes of my time. Probably a little, you know, sometimes this are good of my partners because they're like, Why are you spending so much time in this entrepreneur? It's like I'm spending more time on this entrepreneur because no one else is. And so when I think about being a woman in these spaces, I feel like it's incumbent on me to create space for more women. But no, look at this point, I'm just so used to it. Like, you know, even go back further, I spent my 18 to 22 at the Naval Academy, 12% women. Yeah, the Marine Corps was a little jarring at 5%. But at that point in time, like I made it work for me, right? Like kind of going back to that, anything you can do, I can do better. It's like, I wasn't the best runner out of all of my lieutenants, but I was like, towards the front of the pack, I can do almost as many pull ups, like I just made sure that I really fit into that world. And of course, that prompted an interesting transition on the back end. Like when I went to my MBA program, for the first time, I was surrounded by a bunch of amazing girlfriends and amazing, you know, women that would go on to like incredible jobs. And I could you know, talk about my friends there for hours, just how successful and amazing they are, but they helped me with that transition back to something as simple as going to get my nails done, going to shop for dresses again <laughs> and help me reengage there. So by the time I got to wall street, yeah, I was motivated by being around more women in a more balanced environment. That was great for a while. You know, I obviously enjoyed very much the very first woman that I worked for, but then yeah, going back to McChrystal group, not a lot of women there at least at the senior levels, like I was for a while, the one female managing director elected by my male peers. And then at the hedge fund, of course, like, you know, I roll in there six months pregnant, and everyone's like, what is this (laughs) pregnant woman doing in our space? So it was, you know, again, like, I noticed it, but I know, I've definitely found ways to make it work for me. And I will say now, in security technology investing, It's amazing the number of other, like just other vets that I know in the space. And so, you know, when I go to like the Mill Startup Conference, I describe it as a family reunion. And it's just a bunch of guys that some of which I go back, you know, 20-year relationships with. So I'm enjoying that aspect of it now.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I want to circle back to a comment that you made when you were talking about being in the Marine Corps and being toward the front of the pack when you were out for runs and doing almost as many pull-ups. And you said, I made sure I fit into that world. One of the things that I've found, because I've often also been in male dominated spaces for one reason or another, like one component of my experience there that I really celebrate is the fact that I am a woman did not mean that I was at a disadvantage when it came to mentorship, sponsorship, allyship. To this day, many of the most important mentors in my life are men. And so I think it's so important to put that out there because there will continue to be women in male dominated spaces. And I want them to know that they can win. And one aspect of winning though, is making sure that you build a very strong professional network that is at the table to support you in real ways. Was that part of your experience too? Because when you said I made sure I fit into that world, for me, one of the qualities of my relationships with my closest mentors is that I can be completely authentically myself and I trust them and they are there to support the real me versus sometimes, you know, we have to wear a type of armor when we enter into different spaces and just to set ourselves up for success. As you were both fitting in, were you also able to be your authentic self and attract the mentorship and the support that you needed to thrive?
0: I'm not 100% sure I was always able to be my authentic self. Like if I think back to my time, you know, at the basic school as an instructor, right? So that was a role I went into. I very much resisted going because I remember as a lieutenant sitting in a room with 200 of my peers, when the female instructors were get up in front of us, the men just, they weren't as nice to them, like as a group, right? So I'm very nervous going back there in that role. Now, when I got there, I found an amazing cohort of captains and we would, you know, spend Friday nights playing poker at my house, right? Like there'd be like 25 guys, one other woman and like, like that's what we do. So like I very much bonded with them. I'd say I had a couple of great male sponsors at that point in time. I mean, Lieutenant Colonel Loving, he wrote my recommendations to business school. You know, there's a few of them that really tried to keep me in the Marine Corps and I appreciated that. That being said, no, I don't think I was 100% my authentic self. But I will say the relationships that I built really subsequently with some men in my life that are like 10 years older and have provided both like friendship and advice. If I think about Lewis Runyon, he was one of the very first vets that I met at the bank. He served in the army like back in the early 90s. And he's just been a tremendous friend, mentor, sponsor like throughout my career. And we ended up working together on the Bunker Labs board. And if I think about Jeff Martindale, a retired Army colonel, probably, according to others in the Army, right, I didn't serve the Army, I served the Marine Corps, one of the best combatant commanders, like, hands down. He turned into one of my true friends and sponsors at McChrystal Group. And then, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention General McChrystal. I mean, you know, I'm deeply, deeply indebted to him for, you know, some of the spaces that he pushed me into early, you know, thinking about the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, the CFR, you know, getting me in front of Igor Tolchinsky the CEO of WorldQuant. I mean I learned a tremendous amount from him so I'm definitely grateful. But no, it took me I would say it probably took me till my mid 30s to grow into my authentic self in those environments and that didn't make it any easier. <laughs> I was happy and I'm very happy with, with who I am but like the conversations then only got more challenging.
1: Can we talk a little bit more about my crystal group because one thing that I thought was so interesting was you left Merrill Lynch, you left Bank of America partly because of this dysfunctional relationship with the woman who was leading the team. When I think of uh, you joining Crystal Group, and as you said, really implementing team of teams, it's this expertise around building an outstanding organization and a durable organization. Was that front and center for you? Like the juxtaposition of those two experiences seems to be really rooted in Going from one place that was organizationally very dysfunctional to another place that was designed and led by one of the foremost thinkers around organization design, team building culture in the entire world. Was that intentional? Do you think that that was kind of simmering under the surface or was it really top of mind for you?
0: It was top of mind for me to find a team where I was truly values aligned. That was very important. And it was also important for me, you know, after I'd gotten away from that particular boss for a few months and had some time to reflect, you know, I said, like, I could have made that situation better. She just didn't know how to lead. I'm like, wouldn't it be amazing if she had had some of the opportunities that I had had, you know, as a midshipman learning followership, then a midshipman learning leadership, and then as a young lieutenant learning leadership, and as a captain training other leaders, right? So, like, I had had a tremendous amount of leadership experience. I realized, you know, I could put a lot of good out there into the world by helping senior executives be better leaders so their team wouldn't have that awful feeling in the pits of their stomach as they show up to work every day. And you know, you can train that. You can teach that. You can mentor you can mentor folks and, and get them to that level. So that was very much top of mind for me. And the other piece, I had met Gerald McChrystal while I was at Bank of America, just as they were getting McChrystal Group off the ground. And Dave Silverman, the other founder at the time, actually offered me a job spur of the moment at a bar later that night. He's like, hey, come work with us. We're going to start this thing. You know, there was literally one other person. And I was like, look, I'm an investment banker. You can't afford to pay me. But I was like knocking on his door two years later saying, hey, can I be part of this rocket ship where I can leverage, you know, my bank experience, my leadership experience. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, it really was what I'd hoped it would be. And I still remember saying in the interview, I'm like, I don't really know what y'all are doing here, but I would shovel shit with the right team. But that was actually an answer to one of my interview questions. And it turned out to be a great fit and an amazing ride over the course of six years. Oh, that's awesome.
1: I want to bring us up to present day and talk a little bit about First In. And you've talked about First In as specializing and really focusing on early stage security tech companies. And more recently, we see a growing interest in investing in defense tech and dual use companies, even amongst the generalist firms. Can you talk to us about why you all are focusing on that particular segment of the market and how you feel about the fact that more venture capital dollars are going into defense tech in general and what your thoughts are on First In's goals in the next couple of years? So I think it goes back to, for me,
0: finding the right team, right? So First In, there are three partners. We are all Marines. So we are exceptionally well values aligned, right? Just based on that kind of shared background. Now, before this, we all did different things. I mean, you know, many grew up on the Upper East Side, you know, like was very much inspired by 9-11. He went to the Harvard Business School. And then you've got Arthur, who, you know, he was corp dev at Anduril for a while. He's a lawyer by training, went into the Marine Corps after he was a corporate lawyer. I'm fairly certain I remember he was one of my lieutenants at the basic school. So we're all just very motivated by like our security technology thesis, and that covers both cybersecurity and defense tech. And you know, Arthur, with that amazing Android experience, he's exceptional. At defense tech and Renny started a data and cybersecurity company in around 2010. Sold it, I think, in 2014. And probably had those dates a little bit off. So we are so well aligned with our thesis of investing in your know, early stage security technology companies. Our vision came together, you know, as we came together as a team, which is to empower entrepreneurs to secure our freedom. Now, there are a lot of other, I'd say, teams that look like us in the space, you know, veteran led, similar backgrounds, but where I think we're different, you know, if I go to, hey, I've got a partner that built and sold a data and cybersecurity company, that's Corduro Thesis. I have someone that really was at the, you know. Best defense tech startup, you know, of the last decade, doing corporate development. So, they are both exceptional at what they do. So, I do think we'll differentiate over the long term. Now, as to the interest of all these generalist firms, I think it's good and bad, right? Like, I'm, I'm very happy with you know, a16z getting out the message about American dynamism. I completely believe in it. It's, you know, it's definitely part of what drives us too. But at the end of the day, you also have some folks that don't know how to invest in a space, right? So one of my partners forwarded me this thread uh, from social media. can't tell you if it's true or not, but it's emblematic of some of the stories I've heard where you had a generalist VC invest in a company at an exceptionally high valuation because they said they had an IDIQ. And they just assumed that billion dollar IDIQ, they had somehow conflated that with like recurring revenue. And so you've just you've got a lot of money like coming into the space that isn't very knowledgeable, and I think you know I worry about that a little bit long term. And I can say you know from the amount of time that we spend educating our own LPs about this, like hey, make sure you're looking for these things. Know that an SBIR grant is a grant; it's not recurring revenue. So if a company tells you to have some of those, make sure they're not putting in an IRR. So we spend a lot of time, you know, educating some of these generalist firms, some of our LPs on the space. Long term, I never want to be the one that like sounds the alarm about where we are. And I'm sure every generation kind of feels like they're living in dangerous times. But I mean, Jamie Diamond said it, you know, six weeks, like probably two months back, like I do think we are living in some of the most dangerous times in our history. And, you know, I think our future of security technology investors is you know, I think we're going to have a lot of runway because I don't see the world getting any less dangerous, any less complex. You know, I see the cyber and defense tech as incredibly intertwined. That's why we're investing in both spaces. And I think, you know, like I think this firm is going to have a long future. You know, we are building for the future right now, solid foundation. We're looking to close our second fund. And, you know, it was a crummy fundraising environment for emerging managers last year, of course. But we definitely have kind of the wind in our sails heading into 2024. And the message is resonating. Everybody feels the world getting more complex and more dangerous.
1: Can you talk to us about the types of entrepreneurs that you're investing in? What are you all looking for? What is your investment thesis? So we focus
0: on early stage, so pre seed and seed mostly, security technology, so cybersecurity companies, defense tech. And I'd say potentially dual use data and AI. Now, from that, I mean the types of teams that we're looking to invest in. And like this is part of where you know I come in, right? I spend a lot of time talking about the expertise of both of my partners. And they're also great at identifying great leaders and great teams, but we're looking for entrepreneurs that really are adaptable, resilient, and gonna have you know the grit to see it through. And you know, in our portfolio now, I mean we've got a wide variety of backgrounds, fund one, interestingly enough. At the time that we invested, I think eight out of the 15 CEOs were veterans of either the military or the IC community. So of course we love that background as well. But yeah, like you also have to be mission aligned and vision aligned with us, you know, like our vision to empower entrepreneurs to secure our freedom. It's like, that should speak to you too.
1: One of your passions continues to be around post-military employment for veterans, and you think a lot about the career transition process, how to support it for the military community, how to make it more straightforward, more efficient, more effective. Can you talk a little bit about some of your key insights, lessons learned, things that you just want to pass along, broadly speaking, to veterans and military spouses as they you know, at the onset of their first post-military career choice. And then in those first couple of years where it can be murky for a little while, you know, there can be this sort of exploratory phase as you test different things and figure out what really matters to you. I'd love for you to just share some of your thoughts and reflections on that phase for our military community.
0: Yeah. Murky is a great word. It's murky and it's really hard not to run back to what is comfortable. And so, you know, as I think about like my transition, I remember like literally one day being in a green tree suit, running around the basic school to the next day, you know, on wall street, most expensive outfit I've ever owned. You know, it's amazing suit walk into the wrong interview room. And in there is a man by the name of Art Gorman and he had spent 20 years in the Marine Corps before he became an investor at Merrill Lynch. He guy's like, give me a resume, I'll vote for you later. So, you know, that was my first experience of a Marine taking care of me in the transition. And I'd say, in almost every transition that I've had, there's been another military member that has helped me out in some way. So I just say, look, don't unabashedly like rely very heavily on that network in whatever transition you make. So Art Gorman got me to Merrill Lynch. Mike Sai got me to SoFi. He was another Marine. McChrystal Group, Dave Silverman, and Stan McChrystal got me there. Different transition to the hedge fund. Probably should have told me something there, but I I did go to work with great people and great leaders that I respect. And of course, now at First in, you know, I'm again working with other Marines, and it's very comfortable. Now, that being said, I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form limit yourself to just working with other vets, right? Like I do have mentors, sponsors, people that I've gotten great insights from that you know, spent their entire career as civilians. But there is just something around being around other people that just get it. And, you know, and I think back to I mentioned Lewis running a little bit earlier. And, you know, he was one of the first, like veterans that I met on Wall Street, and we all kind of came together, like the different banks around veterans on Wall Street, five different banks came together, sponsored these transition programs, I took so many calls from so many vets trying to get to Wall Street. I don't really care if people want to end up. I just want to help them get to to where they want to go. And so, you know, we got that machine up and running and that spawned a bunch of other transition programs at the individual banks. Now, you know, as folks are making this transition, I would say where you start is not where you're going to end up. And for better or worse, I think, I'm sure there's statistics around this, but I don't think a lot of vets last in their first job more than two to three years. And I think, you know, there's a number of different reasons for that. Got all these great hiring programs don't necessarily have the best support and mentorship mechanisms in place to keep them there. And I think the hard part for a lot of vets is, you know, is finding their, their mission again, right? Like finding their reason for being. And for me, you know, I got so much of a sense of purpose out of, you know, working on those initial days of vows helping other veterans get to where they want to go. So like find a way to find your meaning or create it. Right. So when I, you know, I talk about that vision of first in, that was three of us coalescing around. What is the thing? What is the thing that's going to get the three of us out of bed every day for the next 20 years? So you're going to have to find your, your sense of purpose again. And I just have to say, it will never be the same, but if you go into it with that expectation and like, you know, you're not going to be depressed because of it. You just you have to know that it's going to be different, but you'll find ways to define your mission again.
1: I appreciate you so much sharing those perspectives. And when you were talking about finding your mission again, it reminded me of a breakliner saying that he was sort of framing it as "I need purpose with a capital P." And I think that that can be tricky in the private sector because when you're serving your country, it's so obvious and it's right in front of your face at all times. A lot of the time I have seen veterans that Breakline has worked with zeroing in on the team and the the people to their left and right. If there isn't sort of a social purpose or a very obvious mission-driven environment that they join for one reason or another, really leaning into the people who are around you tends to help to fill that gap. Look,
0: absolutely. And I found that at the bank first with both you know, so the veterans and like my peers, that I came out of business school with, like we were kind of doing it for each other. And, you know, there were those days where you're, everybody's working late, you know, as folks like to describe in the early days, it's like, you know, like going to Vegas without the casino, right? They're all night working really hard and you're, you're doing it because everybody else around you is doing it. So yeah, I mean, definitely the team can really give you that sense of purpose.
1: The other theme I want to pick up on is you asked for and received help Along the way, largely and often from other veterans around you, but also from other people from your business school program and and other quarters of your life. And I want to double down on that because I, as a civilian and a fan and an ally of our veterans, I've seen a theme around extreme self sufficiency and autonomy and independence. That the downside of that can be a reluctance to ask for help as if that's a weakness. But I want to remind our military community, in particular, that the most successful people you know are experts at asking for help. They are, they oh, do yeah. it every day, all day. And, and, and so look, I, I of the opportunity.
0: Well, to, and look, I learned that one the hard way too. Like I still remember, I had literally left the bank already. I was on like you know like my three months of transition time, and I had a senior guy call me, and he's like, "I didn't know you were in trouble." Like, why didn't you reach out when things got difficult? I didn't say anything to anyone. I didn't complain to my group head until it was like so bad. Again, I didn't want to come to work every day. And he's like, next time, ask for help and ask for help early. And so, yeah, look, I had to relearn that one too. And I got a lot better at it. And like, you know, and candidly had to help some other vets through different aspects of their transition like while I was at my crystal group and yeah, all day long. That's a lot easier to ask probably because we're very often experiencing some of the same challenges, but it's still hard, but don't hesitate to do it. Like, please, you know, don't do what I did. Leave a pretty decent job because I didn't reach out to someone soon enough.
1: Lenore, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for spending the last hour with us. And so looking forward to sharing this conversation with the Breakline community. No, thank you so much for the work that you do. I know
0: a number of vets you know, for whom you've been very instrumental in their transition. So very grateful for that. And you know, thank you so much for the time. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the
1: Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes,
0: we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.